you know, I've been vaccinated. I've been venturing out a little bit. I even agreed to play a gig at a little festival on Memorial Day. Supposed to go into rehearsal for that in a couple of weeks. And then also my school system, uh, as is widely reported in the media across the country, has decided to go back to school requiring vaccination. I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense. Seems to be why I did this anyway. I'm desperate to get back in the classroom. But uh, is my life going to be marked by, oh, you know, this many days ago I was in contact with this person who had a breakthrough infection and I've got this many days before I you know, I'm out of the woods on that. And now I'm thinking, okay, I've had this thing and recovered and I been fully vaccinated. So what are my odds? What's the number? So I have to tell you that even though the, the odds are in my favor, I don't feel great right now, and it's mostly because I'm anxious about getting this thing or spreading it or whatever. You know, again, it's one thing to weather the storm. It's another thing to venture back out into it. And, you know, I fully realize that there's something sort of irrational about my personal fear in this. But the fact is, you know, uh, I don't feel safe until everybody's safe, and I care about the safety of others. Forgive me for that. You know, Mark Twain popularized a, an expression that he attributes to Disraeli, and it's, it's broadly attributed. It's probably been around for a long time, but he said, you know, there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. And, you know, we've all become, in this thing, amateur statis statisticians, if I pronounce that right. Sorry to my drummer. A drummer I used to play with a lot uh, is a math teacher. Um, we used to do this song, I'm a Lonely Mathematician, was one of the lines. I don't, I don't know why. We just thought it referred to him, I guess, because um, you know he knew stuff we didn't know. We thought that we should tease him about it. But the main tease that I learned, if I learned anything about the math department from academic culture, is that when you say to a mathematician who teaches statistics, as this guy does, Statistics isn't math, it's social studies. They get mad. I don't know why I do it. He's the nicest guy in the world. I mean, and saying that about a drummer, you know, musicians can put in your own jokes, but uh, I guess I just wasn't raised right. But anyway, we're, we're all crunching these numbers all the time, but the reason that there are lies, damn lies, and statistics is because, you know, the statistics don't matter when the thing happens to you. <laughs> if you have a 5% chance of getting some terrible disease, you don't get 5% of it. It's like the weather. I don't really understand the weather. I mean, I study the weather. You know, I look at weather maps and I look at how that gradient wind curves around our slough that we live on in the delta and how even though the forecast is for 15 knots, I know I'm going to see 35 in the gusts in the afternoon. But when it says, like, you know, 10% chance of rain, what does that mean? It's going to rain 10% of the day? 9 out of 10 June 12ths 
it's gonna not rain. I don't really know what those statistics mean. I, again, they become pretty meaningless pretty quickly when you're experiencing the, the negative side of it. Or, or I guess I would say even when you're, you know, fearing the negative side of the thing. There's a poem I love by, was Lała Simborska, or at least that's how I pronounce her name. Those Polish names are hard for me. I've got a, two Polish colleagues, and my buddy, who I jam with in the office sometimes in the afternoons when no one's around, likes to joke that only our other Polish colleague can pronounce his name that he can't even pronounce it. I think I got a pretty good handle on it, though. Anyway, um, she has this great poem that I've always loved, a word on statistics. Out of every hundred people, it begins, and then there's a sort of list, you know. Those who always know better, 52, unsure of every step, almost all the rest. Identify with that. Like, it doesn't matter if 52 people out of 100 know what to do when you are plagued by indecision. Ready to help if it doesn't take too long, 49. I'm ready to help if it doesn't take too long. Seemed like it would be more. Able to admire without envy, 18. Led to error by youth which passes, 60 plus or minus, probably, probably plus. Those not to be messed with, 40 and four. I don't know why. Living in constant fear of someone or something, 77. It's got to be true. Capable of happiness, 20. 20 some odd at most. Harmless alone, turns savage in crowds, more than half for sure. Probably more than that. Cruel when forced by circumstances. It's better not to know. Not even approximately. Hmm. Probably all of us. Why is it in hindsight? Yeah. Not many more than wise and foresight, she said, though that's hopeful. Getting nothing out of life except things. 30, though I'd like to be wrong. Doubled over in pain and without a flashlight in the dark. 33, sooner or later. Sorry, 83. We all come to our end. She's building towards that. Those who are just quite a few. 35. But if it takes effort to understand. Three. Worthy of empathy, 99. That's beautiful. I think that's right. Mortal, 100 out of 100, a figure that has never varied. And ultimately, that's why we worry about this sort of thing. You know, it doesn't, the statistics don't matter because um, people are dying and we're all humans. And if you don't have empathy for humans who are dying, then there's something, well, there's something broken in you, but also there's just, uh, you're just missing out on all of what life is. I was sailing around on a research ship one time trying to talk to some students about Richard Henry Dana. I think they thought that it'd be a good idea if these kids read something while they were doing their science projects and climbing around in the rig and I was hanging out and making, you know, bad jokes or whatever but there was a talk going on we had a we had a kind of science thing at the end of the day which was actually really cool i mean honestly you know 
I, I was mostly interested in the sailing. <laughs> I had sailing experience, no science experience. But at the end of the day, they would present research and they would show things that we dug up in the net. You know, when they're like, hey, Brownie, haul up the net, put down the net, you know. They probably actually referred to me by my number. But there were these guys, they were talking about, uh, they were talking about brain scans of people who were in, who were, as they put it, suffering from romantic love. And I had to write a poem about it. And it goes like this. It's, I don't think it's a very good poem. I don't think it was very successful, but you know, as a poem for an audience, but it, it was, I think, an appropriate response, um, at least from my semi-sarcastic point of view. It's called Scientific Method. Here it is. One of the scientists on this ship is discussing brain scans of people suffering from romantic love. It animates apparently only a small area of the brain. I'm having a difficult time hearing what he has to say, though, having only the tiniest sliver of steel lodged in my cornea if that's even what they call it. So, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how small the thing is that affects you. It matters, um, you know, it matters how much it controls your consciousness. And unless science has an immediate solution for it, it doesn't even matter what it's called. If they say like, oh, that's terrible. Let's get you on a helicopter. That's not the same as one of them saying, I know how to fix it. It will trouble you no more. Fear not, my friend. And, you know, scientific certainty is like, uh, is like history. It's, it's useful for processing what happened, but it's not particularly useful as a guide for the experience you're in now. History can be. It, it can be. Don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not being dismissive of other academic disciplines, religions, or worldviews. Um, but I guess I'm saying that, you know, Twain places the statistics at the end of a, of a list of, of lies of increasing severity because they don't just pretend to a level of objectivity. They are objective. And in their objectivity, they erase the subject. And when you're suffering from anything, you are this subject in your own consciousness and not the object. You know, occasionally when I'm walking around the backyard drinking a high life, shooting water at plants like H.I. McDonough in Raisin, Arizona, I'll step in dog poop. And I 100% step in that dog poop. I don't care what the I don't care what the odds are. I don't care what the... I don't care about the times I didn't step in dog poop. You know, I guess I'm saying that when something happens to you, you don't get your percentage of it. You get all of it. But in a way, that's not true either because, you know, in the whole John Donne, you know, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee sense of things. We all got this some. Man, there's been so much suffering, and I just feel like we need to do something. I don't know what we need to do, but something. There needs to be some sort of response to this, some sort of 
huge response to the suffering at a cultural level or at least some sort of widespread recognition at the human toll this thing has taken on us. And maybe we'll get it. Maybe we'll get there. I hope so. But maybe we won't. You know, the flu pandemic of, of 1918, the estimates vary widely, and the reporting has got to be uh, even even more spotty than it is now. But CDC, at least, says that 675,000 Americans died in it, which, you know, adjusted for, uh, you know, population is a lot more than the near 600,000 we're sitting at right now. But, but, but we're getting in the neighborhood of that number. And uh, the flu pandemic of 1918, we kind of, it, it coincided with the end of World War I, and we decided that we were more interested in celebrating the end of World War I than we were thinking backward towards the flu pandemic. And so we often call it the forgotten pandemic because we just kind of moved ahead, which maybe was good. I mean, you know, we we really sort of like draw a dividing line in our culture from the end of World War One forward. And maybe we'll draw a dividing line from the end of this pandemic forward and we'll have a different culture um, after it. And And, you know, hopefully... Uh, it'll be better. And, you know, maybe there's not a lot to learn from a pandemic. I mean, it's so out of the ordinary. And it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, we can learn a lot from the, the human error in it. And I think there will be a response in art to that. I mean, if you look at, like, songs about natural disasters, like Tom Rush's great Galveston Flood, you know, it's like, the arrogance of thinking that the seawall would keep the water down or that the trestles will hold and that the trains can get people out of the way. You know, it's a human arrogance causing human misery situation. And there's plenty of that in the pandemic, too. But, um, you know, at, at a certain level, um, it might be that there's not a huge response in art because we just don't get any insight from it in the way that we might from some other, um, you know, smaller scale natural and human disaster. I'm sure I'll get people responding to this. Uh, how can you call yourself a professor of American literature without knowing this or that? But the only great response to the 1918 influenza epidemic, pandemic, that I can think of in American literature is uh, Catherine Ann Porter's great short novel, Pale Horse, Pale Rider. It starts with with her main character, Miranda. She's a newspaper reporter from Denver. She has the flu. She's being attended by her beau, Adam, who's a soldier. He's about to go off to war. She's super worried about him. You know, he's going to go off to war. He sticks around as long as he can to attend to her. You know, and he's got a, won't, doesn't want to leave her side. He gets sick. He doesn't get killed in the war, which at some level she's even prepared for. Porter has this kind of uh, interesting relationship to, uh, to people who are disappointed by death that I find fascinating. There's a line from the 15th century 
morality play, every man, um, there's the character of death in it. Every man says, O death, thou comest when I had thee least in mind. American writers, uh, many American writers seem fascinated by that passage. Uh, but, you know, the deal is that, like, when you're geared up to meet death, that it doesn't meet you in Porter's great story, The Jilting of Granny Weatherall. She's jilted at the altar as a young woman, but she overcomes it. She soldiers on. She has a she has a great life, um, but she expects some grand moment at death, and then it doesn't come to her. It just sort of slips away. She's jilted by it, too. There's not uh, a revelation that comes with it, I guess. And that's sort of the... Um, the place that uh, Pale Horse, Pale Rider comes to, you know. So ultimately, Miranda recovers from the illness. Adam contracts it and dies. He doesn't get killed in the war. Which again, I think like at some level she could at least make sense of. But being taken by an illness is not something she can make sense of. The novel ends, no more war, no more plague. Only the dazed silence that follows. Now there would be time for everything, except for that everything has changed. But I don't know, ultimately, maybe I'm wrong about all of this. I mean, maybe there was a massive response to it. I mean, we had the Roaring Twenties, and I'm reading articles on my phone every day about how we're going to have another one. So maybe we are. You know, within a few years of the, of the influenza epidemic, uh, we had Louis Armstrong defining the great American art form that he still uh, influences today. He describes in his autobiography a world very much like the one uh, we've got right now, you know. Um, he talks about how, you know, um, all schools were closed, churches, theaters, and movie houses, and other places of amusement. Um, public gatherings were prohibited, such as, you know, sporting events, public funerals, and weddings. He talks about how, uh, you know, once, uh, once the government was about to let crowds of people congregate again so that we could play horns once more, the lid was clamped down tighter than ever, and that forced me to take any jobs I could get. With everybody suffering from the flu, I had to work and play doctor to everyone in my family as well as all my friends in the neighborhood. You know, and then 10 years later, he was able to convert that suffering and his experience with it into some of the purest joy ever expressed in American art. I mean, my love of Louis Armstrong doesn't have to do, um, you know, with his technical precision and his time alone, though they're brilliant. I mean, he uh, expresses joy. Instead of uh, looking backward, maybe, and lamenting the loss of the pandemic, uh, maybe he honored the pandemic by uh, making the world worth living in after surviving it and going on to do good. So I, I think maybe I'm wrong that there wasn't a response to that suffering. I think the response was uh, that we should live again. And I hope that that's what we're getting back to, uh, you know, around now. So I think that's the deal. The way to honor, uh, you know, this experience and those who have suffered and those who continue to suffer 
is to make the world a little bit brighter place after we come out of it. And I hope that's what we're heading to. Um, and I hope that we can all uh, put our shoulder to that wheel to use a, an, an ancient metaphor. Okay, uh, thanks everybody. Take care of yourselves and each other. Um, for those of you who are suffering, um, I'm thinking of you. Uh, I think we're all thinking of the people suffering right now. I hope we are. And uh, let's, uh, let's hope for an end to this thing soon and better outcomes for everybody who is currently unwell. I uh, hope this wasn't too negative. I know that, uh, you know, I try to be a source of positivity myself, but it's hard. Sometimes the real world, uh, you know, thrusts itself in front of you in these dark times. Okay, I'll see you next week. Take care of each other. Bye.